People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality, and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year, and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just gonna be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. What's pushing oil prices lower? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Doomberg, author of the Doomberg Substack. Hi, Doomberg. Welcome back. Maggie, great to be here. I see that you dressed appropriately for the I occasion. Did. I must say, I'm very, very humbled that you would. Uh, think <laughs> it was of subconscious. Me. It was subconscious, <laughs> but I must have had the green chicken in my mind for sure. Either, either that or it's your Halloween costume. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it is great to see you. Um, so we're kicking off. The, I mean, maybe we were both we're both subconscious because we're reflecting the markets, right? We're kicking off the week with a big rally in U.S. stocks, uh, steady Treasury yields, and oil down about three percent, um, sitting right around eighty-two dollars a barrel for WTI. As you look across the dynamics of the market, and they've been pretty volatile so far this this autumn. There's been an awful lot going on. Just broadly, you know, what's top of mind for you when you look at the dynamics? So specifically when it comes to the price of oil, we think that for the moment, at least during periods of heightened geopolitical tension, like they're experiencing in the Middle East, the price of oil is really the market's proxy for its bet on whether things are getting better or worse um, as it pertains to tail risks. And obviously um, with the terrible events that transpired in Israel, and then um, the, I would say the, the rather limited response by Israel thus far compared to initial market fears that drove oil higher, um, the lack of spreading of conflict to Iran in particular, although we saw some headlines today that did give us a little bit of pause. But it, during such times, um, the market tends to be voting on whether or not things are getting better or worse. And it, it would seem that the market at least believes that the situation is not going to spiral, uh, at least not um, to the worst case scenarios that were initially feared in the aftermath of the horrible attacks by Hamas on on Israel. Mm. Having said that, I would counter that heading into the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the market was sending very similar signals uh, where it had probably underestimated the seriousness of uh, Putin's intention. And so uh, we shall see. During times like this, I think fundamentals um, are always important, but take a second row seat to um, the geopolitical events on the ground. And for Western analysts, Looking from the outside, this is really kind of incredibly difficult to model. And so I, I certainly have no particular geopolitical expertise as it pertains to the decades long Israeli Palestine question. And so um, we just have to watch and react like, like everybody else. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and also an excellent point that it is very hard to model this. And the market tends to run from one extreme to the other, you know, so, um, so it can change quickly. 
what what are what is happening on the supply front with fundamentals? Because I think, okay, even if you're able to sort of say, you know, not the worst case scenario, at least for now, some of the worst fears sort of at least on hold. So you can take that, you know, out of the equation for the moment. But from a from a fundamental point of view, we're still getting pretty strong numbers coming out of the US. Um, what are the supply, what's the supply side of the equation look like? Are people anticip- looking at that and concerned about that? Or are they anticipating the fact that, you know, maybe that's going to slow down and that we will see demand start to move lower? I would say sitting in the mid 80s for Brent in particular is kind of the sweet spot for both sides. And I think absent any geopolitical risk, I think both the Saudis and the, you know, OPEC plus in general, uh, along with the major oil consuming countries would be happy with a low volatile oil price range bound between 70 and 90. Um, In those price regimes, producers can make good money, governments can fund their fiscal obligations, and um, the the economy is not really thrown into much strain vis-a-vis recession risk that typically comes when we see super spikes in the price of oil. Mm. So I I think um, mid-80s is high historically. It's it's probably roughly three times the sort of multi-decade average price of oil back um, when uh, such things were being actively managed versus the U.S. dollar. Um, and so it is important to remember that at $80 oil, there's a lot of people making a lot of money in the energy sector. Of course, the day-to-day movements of uh, equities um, are, are always measured against forward expectations and not necessarily absolute values. And, and the changing market expectations relative to what they had previously thought um, are, are usually responsible for the ticks up and, and ticks down. I would say uh, supply in the U.S. has remained more robust than some people had feared. And demand in China has remained more robust than some people had feared. And the market is kind of roughly balanced. Again, whenever I see the oil range bound between 70 and 90 like this, it, it tells you that supply and demand are, are, are roughly well matched. And, and I do think the swings we're seeing, you know, up $3, down $4, up $5. This is just headline risk manifested in, in the daily action. Yeah. And you are right that it's that sweet spot because, you know, certainly we're, especially when it comes to OPEC, we know all of the the producers like to see it there. What's this, what, what is the, uh, on the supply side for the U.S., there were a lot of fears, a lot of headlines about the depleted SPR. Um, Where's the supply coming from and is it sustainable or is the U.S. sort of vulnerable as we're entering this stage of the cycle for to, to sort of be able to manage any geopolitical spike or, or spike that would come on the back of geopolitical events? The SPR has been drained to the point where it's unlikely to be a cap on oil prices going forward. But you have to remember that in its place, OPEC plus um, and, and most specifically Russia and Saudi Arabia have artificially taken offline substantial production volume that could be brought back into the market on a moment's notice. And I think this is the next sort of cap of, of uh, a capping pressure on the price of oil um, and might explain why we're range bound here. In fact, if the Saudis and the Russians hadn't um, decreased their supply, we'd probably be in the 50s or 60s. And so um, that's where we were certainly headed uh, in the aftermath of uh, Biden's political emptying of the SPR. And that's not a partisan statement. I think that's a perfectly objective analysis of what he did. Um, uh, there, there seems to be a few headlines around the desire to eventually maybe potentially refill some 
small portion of the SPR, but our view has always been that um, the SPR uh, won't ever be refilled. And it's no longer really an issue that market uh, participants need to ponder as they uh, wonder which direction the price is going to go. Um, and in fact, China has a, a very large and uh, and quite full strategic petroleum reserve of its own, and it, it has its its own interests in maintaining um, uh, a cap on oil prices. And, and we suspect that they would behave in ways that are far less transparent to market participants. And so there are two sort of caps to the price of oil, which is when it spiked up here recently to the, to the mid-90s, um, you see it now again back down into the mid-80s, which is sort of the, that comfortable equilibrium price, if, if I may borrow a phrase from physics, um, where, where both sides seem to be relatively happy. Um, but the SPR uh, was drained by roughly 50%. I think it was at 690 million barrels total, and it's now in the, in the 350s uh, range. Um, but it, it's no longer thought, at least, that the U.S. can actively deploy a million barrels a day of incremental supply to, to bring the price of oil under control, which it did quite successfully. That is actually a pretty fascinating data point, by the way. 1% of global supply is enough to knock 30% of the price of oil. Uh, that tells you just how uh, inelastic the price is and how sensitive it is to such disruptions, which is why, again, back to the original question, we think that the price of oil today and the price of oil tomorrow and the price of oil on Wednesday and Thursday um, is really just a reflection of the market's belief about whether the situation in the Middle East is heating or cooling. That's so interesting. So you don't think that they'll refill it and you think sort of China will play that role now? Well, the U.S. is a net energy exporter. So you have to remember that the SPR was constructed and filled at a time when the um, the belief amongst Europe, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, political elite was that we had um, reached and long ago surpassed peak oil production in the U.S. And that we, and there's there's a, paper, a piece that we've been contemplating for a while that would explain some of the fallacies of U.S. foreign policy through that lens, where they mm. underestimated the technological capabilities of the domestic energy producers and um, went about uh, on various foreign adventures and in search of uh, reliable supply of oil. Um, and of course, the revolution in the shale patch changed all of that. Um, and, and so um, the U.S. now, uh, unlike when the SPR was conceived, constructed, and filled, is a net energy exporter. Now, look, we have some flows that don't make sense because of some nuances in our refining capacity, um, especially you know, when compared to the types of oil that are coming out of the shale patch versus the types of oil that were being refined when those refineries were originally constructed. And, but on balance, the U.S. produces an enormous amount of energy. Um, it is a net exporter of refined products. It still imports oil, but it also exports oil, again, to match uh, refining uh, nuances. Um, but uh, I just don't, it's very difficult for me to imagine a scenario where the Democrats um, who control the Senate and, and the White House are, uh, are ever going to be in a position to what they would call subsidize the oil and gas industry by putting a put under the price of oil. And, and in fact, you only have to look when oil went negative in the days after oil went negative and was trading in the low teens, President Trump tried to actually buy the lows. And uh, he was uh, gleefully overruled in the Senate by Chuck Schumer. And if we can't refill the SPR or top off the SPR when oil is at $10 a barrel or $20 a barrel, there's no way we're going to do it at 75 or 80 or 90. Um, and so I just don't see a world in which the Democrats have less than 40 votes in the Senate and um, that this is going to be politically palatable. 
Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So what is this, uh, what, what is your feeling about how uh, the energy component is going to factor into the Fed? Because they're looking for inflation to come down. From what you described, we might not see spiraling oil or a much higher oil price, but are we going to see a low enough oil price to take some of the, you know, the pressure off of, of the inflation scenario? How are you thinking about inflation here? I, I think on balance, oil is an inflation um, headwind for the Fed. I think the, uh, the cost of incremental production is is probably, Luke Roman would peg it at between 7 and 9% a year, which um, would explain some of the sustained inflationary pressures that the, the Fed is, is confronting. And in fact, there's an argument to be made that elevated interest rates um, only feed back into the energy sector uh, because financing becomes more difficult to come by and more expensive, which then requires a higher price of oil for the incremental producer to make a reasonable return on capital. Now, there was a time when the uh, stock market was rewarding growth above profits and people were willing to lever long and, and destroy value by producing excess oil in the name of growth, hoping to make it up on the uh, on the sale of their equities. That, that time has long since passed. Um, and so we shall see. Um, but our view is that um, there's a there's a sort of a interesting contrarian view that elevated interest rates are in fact pro-inflationary um, because it, it acts as a form of fiscal stimulus. Obviously the interest payments on new debt um, goes to, to people who are investors, of course, and maybe the velocity of that money is not quite as high as, as direct handouts um, that we saw in the aftermath of the COVID lockdowns. Um, but nonetheless, um, we are running huge fiscal um, deficits in, in large part because interest payments are approaching a um, trillion dollars. Well, that money ends up in the economy. It floats around it. It ends up in your brokerage account if you hold T-bills and treasury bonds and so on. Um, and it gets spent. Um, and so um, we've never really raised interest rates at this rate with this much debt before. Um, and, and so um, it, we are really running an uncontrolled experiment. But to your specific question, I think on balance, the technology developments in the oil sector are deflationary. Um, but there's, you know, at, at reasonable prices, there's an infinite demand for oil. <laughs> and, yeah. and so this is the constant tug and tug of war that we see. Um, by the way, on, on the point of debt, I every time I see one of these headlines, it's always so shocking. Um, there was one today, Treasury announced it's going to borrow $776 billion in the last three months of the year. Um, that's lower than, than, than the, some of the forecasts. So there's actually some yeah. relief on that, but it just gives you an indication. They thought it was going to be north of a trillion, I think, or, or in the 800s, but in total, the high end of that. Well, it just gives it, you a sense of where we are at this level of debt. Do, do the math. We have, what, seven to 10 trillion coming due in, in the next year or two at 5% interest rates. I mean, I, if you just do 5% times 33 trillion, you could see what the run rate if we had to refinance all of it would be, then you look at the term structure of U.S. debt and you see that we have this wall of refinancing. It very, it's very similar to sort of commercial real estate. You know, everybody knows that this is coming. Um, this this wall of refinancing and and um, a famous Kyle Bass line. I think, well, at least I heard it from him, which is a, a rolling loan collects no loss, <laughs> which is such a great <laughs> great way to say it. You know, everyone's going to extend and pretend, I suppose. But um, I don't know how you fund the U.S. government with 33 trillion in debt and counting at 5% interest rates. Um, 
when interest rates are, are a, a greater expense than military expenditures. And, and Lord knows that we're going to be amping those up here as we enter various wars. And so it's, it's, uh, it's truly a historic time. Yeah, it certainly is. We've got some good questions coming in. I just want to uh, touch on a couple more things before we get to them. So don't do not fret. By the way, David David Style says hello. Back from the Austin F one race, Texans are burning a lot of oil. Um, I'm sure that was <laughs> awesome. I hope I hope you enjoyed that, David. Uh, F one certainly getting around to all these American cities, really trying to grow that brand here. Uh, so, Doomberg, when um, I know you've been looking, you mentioned. China and the SPR. I know you've been looking at what they're doing, the role they're playing in natural resources and how they're building it up and some of the advantages that they have. Um, how do we need to be thinking about China in this in this space, especially when it comes to some of those critical minerals? We need to be thinking about China as an adversary. And uh, we need to admit that we're in an economic war with China. And uh, we just put out a piece which... Um, raised a few eyebrows called geopolitical warfare, where we talk about our commodity producers. Forget about innovation and so on. The number one driver of cost is the answer to one simple question. How much are you allowed to pollute? And in the Western world, we have correctly implemented expensive pollution controls because we'd like to live in a society where the water is clean and you could breathe the air and you don't have to wipe... Um, dark stuff off your face when you walk outside because there's, you know, the PM 2.5 number is 250 that day. Um, having been to China several times in my career and having competed against Chinese state-owned enterprises, um, we have said on several podcast appearances that um, when your competitor's idea of a water treatment plant is a pipeline to the river, no American company can compete on cost. And commodities are price takers. You know, commodity producers are price takers. And so if there is a series of industries that we feel we need to have domestically, then we need to recognize that the Chinese are competing unfairly and we need to subsidize those industries, pay them to implement the pollution controls that we find acceptable and offset the competitive disadvantage um, that they find themselves in. Because otherwise, what happens is what we see happening. Um, the Chinese effectively illegally subsidized their domestic producers by allowing them to pollute. They degrade their local environment in exchange for geopolitical power, and then they spend that geopolitical power aggressively. The latest example is um, their moves against graphite exports, which is going to cripple much uh, of the electric vehicle space. Um, I don't believe the market has fully digested the seriousness of this move. Perhaps they're underestimating whether or not China will follow through on it. We would argue that having seen this rodeo many times, um, that this bull is trying to buck us off and, and um, they will probably follow through on it. But it's the same if you look at gallium, if you look at germanium, if you look at the whole solar industry, if you look at battery materials, mm -hmm. whatever China decides is strategic and happens to be environmentally taxing to produce, they put us out of business. I've been put out of business by China um, in my career. I've seen how Western procurement teams will ignore what China is doing. They'll steal intellectual property. They'll pollute um, anything to put Western companies out of business and get a chokehold. 100% of the rare earths produced in the world are processed by China. Why? Processing rare earths mm -hmm. is incredibly environmentally damaging if done poorly. It's expensive to do it in an in a, in a environmentally friendly way. We should measure the difference between how we would do it here and how China is doing it and pay those companies to implement those pollution controls because we view the domestic manufacturing sector to be a national security issue. Look, there's three things that the market fails 
to properly address when it comes to energy. Energy is different than downstream high value manufacturing. There, once you have abundant energy, the free market is in fact the most powerful force. But when it comes to energy and closely related industries, there are three market failures. One, environmental degradation is underpriced. It just is. Um, left to their own devices, companies will pollute for short-term profit and they will leave the problems they create for future generations to handle. Um, that's just simply undeniable. Um, and anybody who thinks otherwise is, is uh, either naive or never worked in industry. Um, and we should just know that and we should accept that um, you know, a, a, as an axiom. Um, the second is energy is different than the other sectors. Um, the, the GDP measurement of energy is a particularly terrible measure of its, of its geopolitical importance. Mm. And we saw this when Russia invaded Ukraine and various Western analysts were saying, oh, you know, Russia's economy is tiny on a GDP basis and they have no power. That is a terrible measure of their geopolitical power. Um, it, it just is like energy is life. And if you control um, energy, uh, then you control everything. And then the third thing that is not properly priced is the national security implications of allowing a geopolitical enemy to monopolize certain choke points. And we've done that. The military is caught off guard because of decades of Wall Street driven financialization and, and driving these industries offshore. And we all know it's a problem. So we put out a piece trying at least to propose a set of solutions, which is one, decide which industries we need to have domestically or in the hands of, of trusted allies. Two, uh, identify most effective technology for the production of those materials. And then three, um, support those, those companies that are willing to do it. Um, it's a lot cheaper than what we're doing with the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, it is very straightforward. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So we have this fight for critical minerals on the one hand, and then, you know, you just brought up this issue of technology. And, and I don't know that they're always contrary, but in some instances, there's this, this you know, arms race for minerals, and then you have the tech revolution, which some say is going to change all of the rules. I want to play a clip from a conversation that Raoul had with Jordi Visser, who had some thoughts on this, and then we'll talk on the other side. So we were worried about not having enough food. We have too much food based on obesity. Um, we may not have enough food for the rest of the globe, but we've wasted so much food that I believe aside from the solutions through nano and through getting to having resistant crops and all the things you said, which are innovation, which are happening, we're going to get through the efficiency side and the productivity side. We're going to eliminate waste. And if you think about what happened with fracking, you can divine it as many ways as you want. But we went from inefficient searching for oil in the ocean. And I can just remember when Petrobras was in the middle and it was like to find it. And we were planting flags at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean to try and find oil because we were running out. And then we had fracking, which is really about efficiency and the ability of getting the sun. So I just think people underestimate when it comes to commodities that when you argue that we're going to have more people and we're going to run out of them, I think we've wasted an enormous amount. And AI is going to help us be more efficient, but it's also going to come up with other solutions. And that entire conversation is available on our website. If you are joining us on YouTube and you are not a full Real Vision member, hit the link, jump on a trial, and come find out what you're missing. Um, so, Dumerg, it's, it's so interesting to think about this. So, do we have to sort of think about technology and, and maybe not 
uh, against this argument of scarcity? Because that is what drives commodities or certainly the ener- a lot of energy is, you know, that supply versus demand. Is this going to be a game changer or how, how are you thinking about that? So we would broadly be in the camp of techno optimists. We mm-hmm. think the market um, has difficulty modeling exponential growth. Um, and, and in that way, we would agree that um, the latest developments, for example, in artificial intelligence, um, but broadly in computer, uh, supercomputer power and modeling um, have indeed um, fed uh, an exponential uh, growth explosion in our capacity to more efficiently procure um, such materials at reasonable prices. We we would, you know, we're, we're researching a piece on, on the singularities near, you know, this book is published almost 20 years ago now, it's incredible, but um, the Ray Kurzweil's book um, was just, everybody who sort of ended up in science reads at some point in their careers uh, it made some pretty amazing predictions and we're gonna go back and look at them and, and then talk about how um, uh, the, the main driver for us in looking at that piece in fact is that we believe that um, the energy needs to feed the computers that are doing all of this AI compute um, is going to potentially normalize nuclear energy again because SMRs, small modular reactors, represent the most viable way to uh, to power all of this. And we have this belief, unsubstantiated hypothesis, conjecture, that um, humans will organize around feeding this ever-increasing desire to power more and more computers. And we should just take that as an axiom and then measure the market accordingly. I'm sure somebody else has a fancier name that they've already thought about this and, and applied to it. But um, but with respect to the oil and gas companies, I think the market routinely and radically underestimates the intellectual horsepower embedded in these companies. I mean, I, I having grown up in that space, um, I can tell you that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of brilliant PhDs and engineers and technologists working every day to make the miracles of modern life happen. And when when the, the sanctions were rolled out against Russia and we were objecting to them and explaining why they would fail, one of the things we pointed out is there's 10,000 you know, um, uh, engineers a day being cranked out out of Chinese universities in the petroleum sector far more than we're producing and, and India and, and the IIT uh, universities of the world and Fudan and the great schools in Asia that, that we'd never even think about are producing all these brilliant people that are going to Russia and are going to help them keep these commodities online. And the mm. I think we, you and I may have even talked about Zaihan um, last time I was on and his sort of techno-pessimism in this space. Um, we would be firmly in the camp that humans will successfully figure out how to extract more and more energy out of the ground in ever more efficient ways and um, betting against the uh, innovation potential of humanity has been a losing trade since the limits to growth was published in the 1970s and we expect um, very little to change in the decades ahead. Amazing. I have, a, I have a much more pedestrian way of looking at it, but I, I feel like the sci-fi guys are always right. <laughs> if you read, if you read any, <laughs> right? It's like they, they've always been, that was, that's always been their assertion and, and it continues to prove out. Okay, let's get to some of these questions. So um, just on that point, what's your view on uranium after the recent rally? I mean, it sounds you know, like long-term, you just kind of painted a very bullish long-term sure. picture. You know, our, our mutual friend, Tony Greer, likes to say, um, when you have runs like this, it's okay to participate. Um, we, we, we aren't in uranium. We have no position. It's been in a pretty good run. Um, the bull case is always there, especially near the top. If, if it were me, you know, again, not investment advice, I would yeah. probably be harvesting a few gains here and waiting and seeing how things um, go forward from here. Yeah. Uh, 
what, let's see, um, a doom, a G Blackburn, Dooms, Doomberg subscriber here. Hey, Doomy, why is decarbonization the goal? Isn't there still room for debate on that? Um, I don't remember making that the goal, <laughs> but um, we have a, a bit of a nuanced view on decarbonization, which is it needs, we, we call it the ultimate trade-off equation. And we just produced a, um, a, a an hour-long presentation for our pro tier this morning called King Doomberg, what we would do if we were in charge of U.S. energy policy. And and the ultimate trade-off equation, in our view, is net energy produced in the numerator divided by some combination of pollution and emissions in the denominator. And as soon as you understand that there's a trade-off, that energy is life, more is better, more is geopolitical power, more is a higher standard of living, and we have to recognize the environmental costs uh, at the same time. Then you can have an intelligent conversation about sensible trade-offs. In his view, um, perhaps carbon emissions are the least uh, damaging trade-off we can make. Others would disagree. Um, but in our view, framing the discussion to measure the trade-offs is a win because right now, um, as it is presented, fossil fuels can do no good and only do harm and renewables can do no harm and only do good. And, and neither of those things are, are true. Yeah. I feel like the conversation is is moving further along to recognize that 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 more nuanced um, transition, but there's still a lot of room to go. Both Paul and uh, Ralph are asking about your thoughts on the direction of nat gas. Mm. Well, nat gas is, of course, subject to geopolitical winds, and um, and in particular, subject to the weather. Um, I checked in on the weather in Western Europe just this morning, and it seems to be trending slightly above average, um, which is good. Um, Dutch TTF is probably up. 60, 70% off the lows, but that is still a fraction of where it was at the apex of the energy crisis last year. Um, U.S. natural gas is just a function of LNG demand at this point. We produce so much of it that we're, we can't give it away. Just to benchmark you at, at $3 per million BTU natural gas in the U.S., which is where Henry Hub is last time I checked. I could be wrong by 10 or 20%. Um, that's the equivalent of 18 to $20 a barrel oil on an energy content basis. We are giving away one of the cleanest fossil fuels um, that we can produce because we just have too much of it. And one of the main drivers of this is the associated natural gas that comes out of the production in the Permian Basin, which is the, still the greatest source of growth uh, in the oil markets uh, in the world. And, um, and so um, as long as we have the stranded natural gas in the U.S., it, it's going to be difficult to normalize prices. Um, at $16 per million BTU Dutch TTF, that's basically energy parity with oil. And because there's some switching capabilities, I think, in Europe, that price makes sense. Um, coal at $130 a ton, all of these prices are, are not screaming crisis. They're screaming relatively well-balanced markets. And let's squeeze one more in. Uh, Philip asking, will Venezuela's breaking of Biden deal on free elections by banning the opposition cause Biden to not allow their oil sales? I would take the over on the amount of oil that Biden lets into the country. Um, as we wrote um, in a recent piece, you know, the Venezuelan oil is the type of oil that the current fleet of U.S. refineries were built to process. Mm. And um, that explains um, why it is that we're kind of bending over backwards um, to get this deal done. Um, it, it makes a lot more sense once you sort of understand the molecular nature uh, of what's transpiring. Um, and so um, we wrote this piece called Molecular Tourism on September 20th that went into the, the, this in pretty good detail. At its apex, Venezuela was importing upwards of 1.5 million barrels a day into the U.S., 
which uh, by comparison is more than we were draining from the SPR. And so with the SPR no longer being a tool for President Biden, uh, I think the heavy grades of Venezuelan crude um, look pretty attractive. And I would also say probably makes him regret killing the Keystone Pipeline, which would have brought similar grades of crude from Canada directly to the refineries that are best able to process it. Yeah, fantastic point. Doomberg, great conversation. I, we've been getting a lot of questions on energy, um, so it's just so fantastic to have you on today and, and get into this a little bit with you. We appreciate it. Anytime, Maggie. It's always a pleasure. Fantastic. And of course, all of the full reports are on Doomberg's Substack. Thanks so much for all your smart questions. Love it. Uh, we will see you again tomorrow. And don't forget, there is a town hall um, for members happening I think it might be for everyone, but I'll check on that. But certainly if you have any issues, questions about any of the things we've been unveiling lately, we're going to go over it, Ral and I, all on Wednesday. So make sure you watch for the time of that. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there, everybody. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds.